Lord, uh, this morning our hearts are filled with thanks and gratitude to you, um, Lord, because you lead us into truths important to us, necessary for our salvation, but which are beyond our comprehension, Lord, which are uh, not understood by us in our mortal minds. Lord, we have to be regenerated by your spirit to accept and understand these things. And so we thank you, Lord, that you send your spirit, Lord, to teach us and to lead us uh, into all truth. Lord, we pray that uh, this morning in worship that uh, we would remember this and continue to give thanks and ask you, Lord, uh, by your spirit to reveal your gospel to us. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Today's reading of God's Word comes from Hebrews 12, 1 through 13. This can be found in the Pew Bible, page 495, or the following Jesus Bible, page 610. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and lets us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children, first grade and younger, can be dismissed to children's worship. Uh, line up at the door and follow me there. Well, good morning. I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Christopher Talley. I'm the music director here at Faith Presbyterian. And... Uh, uh, I, usually it's not me that you'd hear preach. So if you're visiting today, I encourage you to come back next week <laughs> and uh, hear uh, the real pastor preach. But it is an uh, honor and privilege to serve you today. And uh, I want to thank 
uh, Jason and the elders for asking me to speak. I uh, also want to pray for all those who are praying for me. Um, quite a few have uh, shared that with me this morning, and I very much appreciate it. While we cannot know the future, God has given us the ability to imagine it. The ability is critical to how we live. When we leave on a trip, we first imagine the future course of that journey and think critically about the choices we will face. The ability to imagine the future enables us to prepare for those decisions. By giving us the imaginative capacity for foresight, our Maker has equipped us with an important tool for life and His creation. Without this ability, it would be much more difficult, perhaps impossible, to make wise decisions that lead to flourishing. Today, we gather for worship on the eve of a new year, and many people around the world will make resolutions for the year ahead. It is an exercise in imagining the future, not unlike the planning of a trip. Instead of a geographical destination, New Year's resolutions generally envision some type of personal transformation or improvement. My purpose this morning is not to encourage you or discourage the making of New Year's resolutions, but to get us thinking biblically about the desire for personal growth that drives that practice. What would we learn about a person if we knew their resolutions? It might reveal a lot about their values and their desired destination in life. We might uncover their convictions about what constitutes human flourishing. We might discover what generates dissatisfaction in their life. In a Christian, I expect we would observe the effects of the gospel. Ideally, we would find that he or she possesses a holy ambition for spiritual transformation. We would discover evidence of an eagerness to live in the presence of God, to be animated by His Spirit, and to live according to the teaching and example of Jesus. Perhaps their resolutions remind us, would remind us of that declaration made by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 13-14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press onward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Today's scripture is rich with imagery that will stir up our holy ambition for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you send your spirit to illuminate your word this morning. Use it to set before our imaginations a vision of life in Christ. Use it to kindle in us greater conviction, passion, and ambition to grow as disciples of Jesus in the year ahead. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen. So um, this week as I prayed and prepared and uh, um, asking God uh, to 
help me understand or, or, or hear clearly um, what he would have me say to you. Um, there's a couple of things I feel like I just need to get them out in the front <laughs> of this sermon because I'm not confident that my sermon is going to communicate them clearly. So this is like a fail-safe method. I'm just going to tell you my my point right at the beginning, and then uh, perhaps as you uh, as I progress through the sermon, um, you'll it'll make sense to you. So um, the first uh, item on my heart from God is that I desire, and this is not just for. For you, this is for me, this is for all the church, uh, that we would root our ambitions not in the mind of flesh, but in the mind of Christ. I used to uh, be dismissive of just about any ambition, um, but uh, I realized that there is a holy ambition, and it's, there's, the Bible is full of examples of it, and um, it certainly uh drove Jesus, it drove uh, men like Paul, and so there is a holy ambition, and um, so I want us to have that holy ambition that's rooted in the mind of Christ. And then the second thing is to share what I think is a useful tool or way to think about um, discipleship and how we can pursue that holy ambition. So those are my goals this morning. I hope uh, that Somehow this makes sense. As we begin to look carefully at this passage, Hebrews 12, we should note the discussion that logically precedes it in chapter 11. If you want to turn there, you can. I think I tried to put it on the PowerPoint, yes. Here is a chapter devoted to the topic of faith, and it opens with this statement. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How can we apprehend things hoped for but not seen? By what faculty do we hold the gospel before our minds so that we might express hope for and conviction in it? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So how? Well, God has equipped us to behold things that are unseen. 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10 says this, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. God makes faith possible by giving his Spirit, renewing the mind and sanctifying the imagination. As I understand it, the Reformed tradition teaches that an unbeliever must be enabled by the Spirit through regeneration to believe the gospel. That's why we must ask God in prayer to enable the lost sinner to believe, no matter what else we may do to help them hear and understand the gospel. In reading chapter 11, 
we are presented with example after example of how those who were counted righteous by faith believed God for what could not be seen. In each case, whether it be Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, they acted trusting God to secure for them his purpose in their lives. Arriving at chapter 12, we return to the present and are invited to imagine ourselves surrounded by this great cloud of faithful witnesses that have gone before us. Their faith is an example for us in kind, but not precisely in content. It was imperfect because Jesus had not yet been revealed. Verses 39 and 40 of chapter 11 explain. I don't have this one on there, so you'd have to look in your Bibles. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Saving faith in the present looks to a vision made perfect by the gospel of Jesus. So what does walking by faith and not by sight entail for us as we look ahead to our own journey of spiritual growth? First, gospel faith places Jesus at the center of our life vision. The Christian journey will form us to become like Christ. Romans 8.29 tells us that believers have been predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we fix our vision on him who is founded and will perfect our faith and we set out to become like him. And we have this example. Jesus lived this way, driven to fulfill his purpose by the joy set before him. And as he ran, the vision of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God sustained him in his suffering. What vision will compel us to run our race? It is the joy of being united with Jesus for life in his kingdom. What course will our race take? The path of our journey will look like the circumstances of our lives negotiated in obedience to and for the glory of God as if directed by Jesus himself. Now, that's a very dense statement. And uh, it requires that we ponder the significance of the reality that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And I was trying to think of a way to uh, maybe help make the point. And it's something like this. This is a thought experiment. What if um, Jesus uh, were to inhabit uh, your life right now? And by that I mean move into your house, take up your job, establish the same relationships that you have. And uh, what would that look like? What, what decisions would he make? What, what course would he take in, in that life? And that's, that's what I mean by um, the, the circumstances of our lives being negotiated as if Jesus himself were directing us. When our living is completely directed and animated by his spirit... When every sinful impulse and habit that clings and weighs down has been laid aside, when every 
when our ambition has been sanctified and oriented toward his glory, then we will have reached the destination of conformity to Christ. Will we finish the race? Yes, but not in this life, for the perishable does not inherit the imperishable. But this shouldn't slow us down. Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Life tends to distract me from the course. I get caught up in its affairs, and I forget that I have a race to run. Today is a great day to ask God to help us imagine the finish line of our journey and grant us the grace to keep that vision before us, directing our steps into the future. So gospel faith places Jesus at the center of our life vision. Second, this passage teaches us that in this race, vision must be accompanied by intention. Every imperative in this passage assumes that the believer will possess a resolved intention to take concrete action in pursuit of God's vision, to run the race. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. It would be silly to demand these things of a spectator. No, these are things a coach would tell competing athletes. These are straight, honest words that encourage us to commit to this race with its challenges. Now, we cannot muster this resolved intention from our own resources. No, it is the power of God at work in us. But we are not passive in this. Jesus has won for us the freedom to obey God and pursue his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 states, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This passage presents to us um, a truth which may seem paradoxical, but uh, here it is. Um, We are commanded to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And then we are told it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm not going to try to resolve that for you because I don't think I should. I think we have to live uh, in the tension of, of believing those two things that we do strive to follow after Christ. But we also recognize that in that striving, it is the will of God working out in us. So, gospel faith places Jesus at the center of our life vision. And that vision must be accompanied by intention. The third thing this passage teaches us is that God's discipline is upon us as we run this race. Verse 11 tells us what type of discipline is in view here. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The point of God's fatherly discipline is not to exact justice. That took place on the cross when Jesus bore the penalty of our sins. No, the discipline in view here is that of a loving father who must sometimes chastise the son in order to train him into adulthood. Through the adversity of following Jesus, God's grace accomplishes the full course of its power in our lives. His discipline forms in us the character necessary to finish the race. He is training us to run well. So in verse 1, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then verses 12 and 13, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. These commands are telling us how to run well. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 to help us flesh out this picture of the believer as a disciplined athlete. I think this one I have. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners, I'm sorry, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, does this violate the doctrine of grace? No. No, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. When a regenerate Christian strives to run the race, it is always by the energizing and directing power of God's Spirit graciously given. Sanctification is His gracious work in us. When we cooperate with Him, it is by submission to His power and plan. And in doing so, we in no way earn His favor or put Him under obligation to reward us. His favor and His rewards are always graciously given, never earned. We have a word for the process of God's training and discipline in our lives, discipleship. We observe the command in this passage that we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It is similar to another passage which was used in our liturgy today where Paul reminded the church in Ephesus how they learned Christ, an interesting phrase worth pondering, and were taught to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The question is, how? How do we put off the old self and put on the new self? This is starting to sound a little like resolution making. But the answer is in in Ephesians is to be imitators of God. And you can look at chapter 5, verse 1. How can we imitate God? Well, as it happens, he became a man. And we have a record of how he lived while on earth. Furthermore, we have the example of his disciples and what they have done while following him for 2,000 years. 
Imitating God is discipleship and it involves taking up the practice and habits of Jesus. What are the habits and practices? Prayer, fasting, feeding on God's word, worshiping with other believers, caring for the needy, giving generously, sharing the gospel, to name some but not all. These are instrumentalities or means that form us into the type of people who will run the race. As we are trained by them, God graciously brings us into alignment with the Spirit, animating and directing us along the course of Christ. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I want to, I'm going to conclude today with a discipleship tool that I, may, I believe may be helpful for us. Uh, as we seek to grow as disciples of Jesus. And this comes from uh, Dallas Willard, and you can read about it in Chapter 2 of Renewing the Christian Mind. Um, It is a thought tool that will allow you to quickly check yourself in this race we have been considering. You can remember it by the acronym VIM, which stands for Vision, intention, and means. If you use it, you will begin to notice it in many of the exhortations of Scripture. It describes the process of all effective programs of personal transformation. Vision is what motivates us. Intention is what moves us. Means are the practices that form us. Each element strengthens the others. I'll illustrate with a real-life example I'm acquainted with. A person comes to me and asks me to help them learn to play the guitar. They have a vision of themselves playing the guitar. If that vision is strong and compelling, they will act with intention, which has already begun when they seek my help. The strength of vision remains important. If it is inadequate, they will quit. If the vision is strong... It is more likely that their intention will be earnest and they will begin to order their time, subordinate lesser goals, and commit to a path of progression towards playing guitar. Finally, they will submit to the means of achieving that vision through engagement with the practices of those who have gone before them, which is where I come in. I will lead them to engage in the means or instrumentalities that will form them into a guitarist and a musician. Now, if we want to get physically healthy or learn a foreign language or write a novel, this is basically the effective path we will take. And God knows how we tick. He understands how we are motivated because he created us and he gave us abilities like the capacity to imagine a future reality. So when we come to discipleship, Vision, intention, means, helps us to picture how we will engage with God in spiritual growth. Does God give us a vision of who we will become? Yes, he does. We will become like Jesus, and we will flourish and bear fruit in his kingdom. Does God direct and animate our intentions so that we take action? Yes, he does. He transforms us from death to life gives us new hearts and the spirit that will not let us rest until we're moving on the pathway to Christ-likeness? Does God ordain the means of becoming like his son? Yes, 
He calls us to imitate his son by adapting the practices and habits that sustained him during his life on earth and has continued to align believers ever since to the power of the Spirit and to life in God's kingdom. As a final remark, I want to stress that sanctification is a process for the regenerate. We can try with all our might to become like Jesus, but we can't get one inch closer to that goal if we haven't trusted him and received new life in the Spirit. If you are unconvinced that there is no hope, no life, no truth outside of Jesus and his gracious work, then I encourage you to start there. You must believe. If, however, you are convinced that Jesus must be everything, then be greatly encouraged because God's power and life are already in you and he is committed to the fulfillment of his purposes in your life. I hope that you resolve to run the race with vigor in 2024. Let us pray. Again, Lord, I'm uh, humbled to stand before your people and speak. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit, um, which has already been at work, continues, Lord, to quicken uh, your word to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, um, sanctify our imaginations as we think about our futures. Lord, give us the mind of Christ so that our ambitions would not be of this world, but would be eternal. Lord, I pray that uh, everyone here, Lord, who believes, would understand the discipline of a loving father. Lord, that they would uh, receive your training and your correction and your instruction. Lord, I pray that um, you raise up those who leave this church, um, pastor and the elders and all the teachers and of Sunday school to, uh, Lord, to equip the saints uh, to run this race. And uh, we confess, Lord, that we need your grace. We need your guidance, and we can't do it without the power of your spirit. So, Lord, bless this church and... Uh, in the week ahead, Lord, I would pray that uh, you strengthen our knees, Lord, that you set our feet on straight paths, and that we would run hard after your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.